You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. <laughs> hey, good morning, everybody. Try this again. Good morning, everybody. (laughs) That's better now. I know I'm not here alone. Hey, if you are new with us, visiting with us for the first time, or visiting with us online, my name's Joe, one of the pastors here, and I uh, get the privilege of taking us into God's Word this morning. Uh, We are in the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, So we've been studying that book now for just a few weeks. And uh, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 19. If you are not familiar with the way that we kind of roll here, uh, we always start at the beginning of a book and we work our way through it word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, until we get through the end of the book. And so we are in 2 Timothy now because we did Ephesians a number of years ago. And then we did 1 Timothy, who basically was the second pastor of the church in Ephesus after Paul planted it. And uh, so he's writing that letter to uh, uh, Timothy. And now we're in the book of 2 Timothy, um, which feels like the third letter to the church at Ephesus, if you think about it that way. So that's why we're here. It's a short book. We're already, uh, we're already basically halfway through the book. So uh, for those of you that were around years ago for the Gospel of Luke, Luke, and it took us like four years to get through it, you're probably breathing a sigh of relief as we near the end. Um, I do want to give a little bit of a pitch for where I, I'm sensing that maybe the Lord would take us uh, after the first of the year because we'll be in 2 Timothy here for a little bit and then you got holiday season rolling in, so we'll probably do something for Thanksgiving and then we're definitely going to do something in the Christmas season for a number of weeks. After the first of the year, I, I keep dreaming and thinking about what it would be like to uh, study through the book of Acts together. I think that would be exciting. Um, we are 10 years old as a church, and so I can see some smiles on some of you guys' faces. You might remember uh, if you were here in the early days, that was the first book we preached through and studied through when we first launched in our living room 10 years ago. And I thought, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit better of a preacher now than I was then, and we are a, a little bit different of a church now than we were then. So we thought, you know what, 10 years later, uh, maybe it would be a good idea to revisit uh, the book of Acts, and I will promise for those of you that, are, that have been here 10 years or, or remember, there was a certain video that we played to lead in every sermon. Uh, two, I think, it was, uh, I think it, was the, it was the book of Acts in two minutes, if I remember, and, and the entire video takes you from the beginning of Acts to the end, and it's quite creative and quite fun. And I remember the last time we did that study, everybody in the congregation had pretty much memorized the video and could talk along with it, and so that'll be the challenge for us now. Uh, when we do this again, but that's where I think we're going to be headed over the next few months into the first, uh, the first part of the year, and so you'll be praying that way, maybe even studying ahead that way, and let the Lord prepare your heart. That would be pretty awesome. Today, though, we are in 2 Timothy, right? Chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. I know y'all got seated just a minute ago, and I don't want to feel too Catholic for us, but if you would stand up with me one more time for the reading of God's Word. Uh, you don't have to read with me. Um, but you can follow along with me in your Bibles or on the screen in front of you. So, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. Here's what God would say to us. Remind them of these things, 
and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let me, let me pray. Father, I want to ask a blessing over your word this morning. I ask that you would come and by the power of your spirit, speak to us powerfully. Speak to us powerfully. Draw our attention, Father, to the work of your son Jesus at that bloody cross. Remind us of the victory of that empty tomb and seal deep within our souls and our hearts once again uh, the, the glorious hope that we have in the promise of heaven. Pray that you would do this and, and then some. Trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Studying this uh, passage this week, um, I couldn't help but have my attention drawn to the words of verse 15. Feel like the core of what Paul is saying to young Timothy here. The words of verse 15 simply say this. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Read those words. I read those words and, and it captures my attention. I begin to think about uh, how powerful the desire for approval is. You think about that word approval? When you long for approval, how you seek to get approval, how it feels when you get approval from someone. Desire for approval can be a very powerful thing. I also think it can be a very hard thing to completely satisfy. Are you with me? If you think about this, um, this, this thing we call approval, you think about how from an early age we are shaped, we are molded along the lines of approval. We, we, we learn how to gain approval from other people around us from a very early age. Um, think about it in terms of our parents, right? Uh, our, our parents would show to us uh, how they would approve or disapprove of certain things we did right or did wrong, which is a good thing, but it shapes us. Our teachers in schools uh, show their approval or their disapproval by their giving of grades, and I have to confess that one of my issues when it comes to grades, I do seminary classes now, and my issue is that if I get anything less than a 99, I'm upset. There's a little perfectionism inside of me. Um, our bosses, if you, if you work in a vocation, if you have a boss, even if you're your own boss, you still have countless uh, clients who are basically your boss, right? 
You look for approval from them, and, and they show their approval or their disapproval through uh, the way that they increase or decrease your wage or take away your job, right? It can, it can open up some stuff inside of you when you think about our vocations, especially when we think about how in our vocation, in our work, we spend the majority of our um, daily hours there. The time that we're awake, we spend more time there than anywhere else, learning to earn approval. Think about this in terms of marriages. Um, spouses will give and withhold approval, especially when conflict arises, right? That's when getting some kind of approval is tough. I would say, too, that even the tough of, toughest of us in this room who would say that, man, I, I, like, I don't worry too much about what people think about me, even if you're that person, the end of the day, uh, we still struggle with some kind of longing for approval. And I think that this desire that, that's, that's fully alive inside of every one of us, again, I think it kind of shapes us, it kind of molds us, and it, it can have a tendency to kind of transform you and I into people who wind up just living our lives to please other people, right? It's a whole people-pleasing mentality. And that makes things really tough. Um, I'm sure we all know what that's like when we get into that rut, which uh, I love the saying, this is a sidebar, I love the saying that says that a, a rut is just a grave with the ends kicked out. I don't know why the ends are kicked out, but anyways, it's a grave with the ends kicked out, it's a rut. You get into that rut where you're just seeking to please everyone around you. And the reality is, is it'll never bring you complete or lasting satisfaction, right? As soon as that emotion or that feeling wears off, you wind up trying to seek it again from someone. The reality is that we will always be thirsty for more approval. We will always look for ways that we can gain more approval from others if we are looking especially to created beings to get that sense of approval from. I was thinking about this human approval thing, and I don't know where I landed on this statement, but I like it. It says that human approval is like a bad check that never clears the bank. So if you're a people pleaser like me, <laughs> it's just really refreshing to be reminded that Human approval is like a bad check that never clears the bank. You get that approval and you're excited. It's like when you get that big check for a million bucks. You know, Something inside of you says, I don't know if the guy who wrote this million dollar check is really all that faithful, but I'm going to run down to the bank excited and hoping, and you get there, and then all plummets. Like, yeah, that's, that's a bad check. Like that's, that's the image and the sense that I get in my mind when I think about that statement. Human approval is like a bad check that never going to clear the bank. I think the Apostle Paul, when he wrote these words to young Timothy, I think he knew just how difficult it was going to be for young Timothy to continue leading the church in Ephesus, okay? Especially when it comes to dealing with this desire for human approval. It seems to me that it's obvious as you do a study of this letter that there were some very powerful people, some very well-known leaders who used to be part of the church in Ephesus, this church that Timothy's leading. 
There used to be some very powerful, very well-known leaders there, and they're now opposing Timothy, and they're teaching false doctrine, okay? If you were to look at 1 Timothy 1.20, if you were to look back in this letter to second, in 2 Timothy, look at verses 17 through 18 of chapter 2. You can even look back, I think, in, in uh, chapter 1, and he lists some names. It seems obvious that there are some, some leaders who, at one point... And still were very, very well known. And now they were opposing Timothy's leadership. That's never a fun place to try to gain approval when you have people opposing you. And opposition, when you think about opposition, opposition from other well-known ex-leaders in the church, that, that can be a super difficult road to walk when you're facing that. And it's not just that your pastors or deacons uh, or other leaders in the church face that. Every member in a church family is going to face that at some point in time. Right? Opposition is, it's going to happen. And yet it's a very difficult road to walk. And especially if those leaders have the approval, think about it that way, if those leaders uh, who are ex-leaders now actually have the approval of some of the people in the community well-known, famous maybe, it makes this road difficult. And it brings that desire to be a people pleaser and brings that desire to, be, to gain approval from other people right to the forefront. And so young Timothy here needs to be reminded that his approval, listen to this, does not come from other people, Right? It doesn't come from other people. Timothy's approval comes from our Heavenly Father from the, because of the work of Jesus at the cross, at the, at the empty tomb, because of the hope of heaven, because of Jesus' finished work at the cross of Calvary. If you and I have trusted in that message, then you and I have all of the approval we will ever need. It's meant to completely satisfy our souls. What young Timothy needs to do, and really, by default, as we're hearing this message, as we're studying this text, is that we need to labor as ministers of God. And you might say, well, I'm not a minister, I'm not on stage. No, every member a minister is the philosophy we have when we look at scriptures. Because God has given every person a set of gifts and talents and passions and abilities and a place in a church family to serve, to lead, and to minister. So, all of us, along with Timothy, need to labor as ministers of God from a different kind of perspective than what we maybe have been shaped by in this world we live in. And that new perspective is this. He's saying, Timothy, hey, yo, you, you have all the approval you're ever going to need, so don't try to gain the kind of approval, that human approval that will never satisfy your heart because it's a blank check that's going to bounce. So if young Timothy can hang on to this, if you, if you and I can hear this, and if we can lay hold of it, and if we, can, if we can hang on to it, this truth that our approval comes from the floor of the throne room of heaven, you think about that. 
That our approval comes from the floor of the throne room of heaven. This is where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he's reigning as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's how he will return. If we can hang on to the fact that that's where our approval actually comes from, then you, Eli, along with Timothy, would undoubtedly follow in the Apostle Paul's footsteps. The man who writes this letter, right? in basically serving faithfully until the very end. The Apostle Paul is on death row for preaching the gospel. Very shortly after he ends this letter, he's going to get his head hacked off for preaching the gospel. He served faithfully until the very end, and it's what he wants for Timothy. It's what God wants for every one of us, is to hang on to this truth, that our approval comes from the floor of the throne room of heaven, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is seated on the throne and he will return one day to take us home to be with him for all of eternity. Isn't that fantastic? Well, the question is, what does it look like? <laughs> before we get there, right? before we get to heaven, because we ain't there yet, we're still, I was going to say stuck here. <laughs> we're here. Okay. We're still, what does it look like then to walk this out in the already not yet kind of like, like, we're already, if you trusted in Jesus, you, like you're already a citizen of heaven, but you're walking out this thing, this walk here on this side of heaven. So it's, we're already citizens, but we're not yet there. How are we going to do that? What does it look like to be a person who has God's approval? A couple of things I see in the text. First thing I see is this. A person who has God's approval does not argue about petty things. Everybody go, whew. A person who has God's approval does not argue about petty things. I think this is why the Apostle Paul starts off by saying, remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words. I think there's a, there's a commercial. Is it flow? Yeah, it, it's flow and her insurance. And she shows up to the door and her... Her sister, which was really her, the same characters at the door holding the baby. And at some point she goes, keep saying your words. <laughs> keep saying your words. He says, remind them of these things. Charge them before God. Not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. You read that, you think about that, you study that out a little bit. You know, you let, let God kind of speak into that. Here's what I find. Here's what I think I see. Pretty simple, right? Simple and straightforward. Arguing about petty things can be a really destructive habit in the life of a church family. In this case, as Paul's talking to Timothy, he's talking about quarreling about words. Um, this has to do with arguing about the things of God, right? And trying to make yourself appear more intellectual or intelligent than the next person. This is what some of these ex-leaders from Ephesus were hung up on. It was kind of a, you ever see a, the Me Monster video? If you haven't seen the Me Monster video, you might watch that. Um, I was, it's just what it reminds me. It's like somebody just kind of beating their chest. Oh, look at me. How great I am. Intellectual. This stuff happens in the church family all the time, right? Like there's one hotbed for intellectualism. And, and look, I'm a highly intellectual guy. I get it. I know it. So I, I'm, you know, I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to myself right now, but. This happens a lot in the church, right? 
you know, theological arguments that are meaningless, some that are meaningful, um, learning the difference. It's part of the trick. But uh, I think this argument over words happens often in the church family, this intellectualism, <clears throat> this, this trying to prove that I'm more intelligent than you Happens often in the church family. I think one that comes right alongside that, though, is probably even more applicable for us oftentimes in the church is all the arguments that happen over the parking lot lines and the color of the carpet and the color of the trim and yada, 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 right? Uh, I've heard <laughs> a few times, often experienced this, this kind of destructive behavior where, where people who want to argue over how certain words made them feel. And when we live in a lot of that today... Um, we, uh, we allow feelings to dictate um, our well-being. So oftentimes, the arguments become how those words made me feel. Hear that just as often as I think we hear complaints and arguments over inanimate objects like toilet paper rolls and, again, color of carpet and those kinds of things. Um, what Paul is doing here is he's reminding Timothy, basically, saying, hey, don't get caught up in that kind or those kinds of petty arguments. Why? Well, because they do no good but only ruin the hearers. You think about that phrase, like, if you get caught up in it, it's going to ruin you. And it's going to ruin everybody else that hears it. So don't get caught up in it. Don't start it. Don't even engage in it. Second thing I notice here in the text is that a, a person who has God's approval rightly handles God's word, right? A person who has God's approval rightly handles God's word. You look at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 15. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I read that and I think, this. I think like there's no shame whatsoever in just speaking the straightforward truths of God's word. You know what I mean? Like just speaking the straightforward truths of God's word. And God's word doesn't need fancy illustrations or silly jokes, although you often hear those, right? I often give those. But really, God's word doesn't need that. God's word only needs to be explained in a very straightforward fashion without any frills, without any lights, without any smoke, without any fog, without any funny stage props. Our first stage prop that we moved in here was the cross behind me. The building was flat empty when we walked in. and <laughs> Flat empty when we walked in here. And the, the church that was here before, I think the pastor was preaching and teaching some doctrines that were way off base and really wild, whack stuff. And we walked in, we prayed throughout the building, and, and we just said, you know, the first thing we're going to put in here is a cross on that wall. And, and our, our hope is that that cross would um, be bigger than any preacher that stands in the pulpit and any congregation that ever meets here. It uh, doesn't mean that we haven't made some <laughs> mistakes there. We do have one good prop, right, the, the cross, but... Um, I, there are a lot of churches today who will bring like race cars in on the stage. I'd like to bring my motorcycle in the church. That'd be kind of fun, but <laughs> you don't need to, you know, you, you just don't need to. Many of today's preachers, and again, even I myself, and get this wrong sometimes, lose sight 
lose sight of the power of God's word to accomplish on its own what no mere mortal man could ever accomplish. Which is namely what? The salvation and the sanctification. The salvation meaning the saving of souls. The sanctification meaning the making holy of those newly saved souls. The continual growth in holiness, becoming more like Jesus. That's what sanctification means. This is what God's word is meant to accomplish, the salvation and the sanctification of God's people. Therefore, I think as we're looking at this text, the calling for all of us as ministers of the Lord is to simply rightly handle God's word by explaining it in a straightforward, clear fashion while trusting God to produce the results. I want to say one more thing before we move on to the next point. One of the things that I have really enjoyed over the years in ministry and just walking as a believer, is, is finding people who like just start following Jesus, right? Maybe had a little bit of a religious background, maybe had none. Let's just start following Jesus, start reading the Bible. And you start asking, hey, what are you reading? What are you getting out of that? Like, what's God speaking to you now? Well, I don't know if I'm saying this quite right, but I think. And, and you can tell, like, a, a newer believer is like, I feel really, like, intimidated by doing this, right? And I just know for me, I'm sitting on the other side as a believer who's been following Jesus for like 22, almost 23 years, and I'm going, gosh, to go back to the simple days when I just read what I read, and I just communicate what I hear, and it's simple, and it's straightforward. There's something really special about walking with newer and younger believers in that um, versus like where I'm at now, right? But working through seminary and using big fat words and phrases that are put in you, you spend part of your time putting up discussion board posts and writing papers to get a degree, which is stupid because your credentials come from the floor of heaven, not from a seminary, right? But study to show thyself approved, so I go ahead and study anyways. But there's such a, there's such a disconnect between that whole academic culture and the culture of those of us who just sit in these seats, right? We're just average people trying to live out what God tells us day in and day out. And so I love getting into those spaces where it's like, oh, it's not academia anymore. It's just me and you, and it's life on life, and it's grimy, and it ain't always pretty. And sometimes you just look at each other and you go, I, I don't know. I just read this, and I don't get it. And it's okay to be in that space until the Holy Spirit shows you, right? Like, I love that aspect of the straightforward, clear fashion of God's word and just trusting him with the results so that's my sidebar point three let's go to point three. Third thing i notice regards to a person who has god's approval this person is a person who avoids ungodly controversy okay if you look at verses 16 through 18 paul says hey avoid irreverent babble why for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Well, that's fascinating. Because even in Paul and Timothy's day as he's writing this, those ex-leaders of the church are basically trying to, to convince people that, hey, if you come listen to everything we had to say, all of our irreverent babble, it's going to lead you into greater godliness than what you had when you were part of that church. That's what they're saying. And Paul says, no, avoid that. Avoid irreverent babble because it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. He moves on. He kind of ramps up his intensity. And he says, their talk. And you go, oh, who's the there? There, T-H-E-I-R, which means them, right? Their talk 
will spread like gangrene. Ever seen somebody who has gangrene in a leg? You're eventually going to cut that thing off. It's rotten, it stinks, it's painful, deadly. Die from that, right? Their talk will spread like gangrene. You're still hanging on that word there going, well, who is he talking about? Well, now he tells you, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Those two scallywag scoundrels, that's my word for those guys. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, right? I, I swerve in my car or on my bike to, like, miss dead deer and other things in the middle of the road. You know? A real dangerous part of that swerving, and you know, is if you swerve and go in the ditch, right? If you can swerve and get back on the road, you're okay. Every one of us experiences seasons where we swerve a little bit. We kind of fall away from maybe what truth is, and we need to be brought back on track. And that's what we have a church family around us for, is be like, yo, you are getting very close to the edge of that ditch. Let's help get you back in the center here. I need that too, right? We all need that. What Paul's saying here is he's saying, hey, these two guys have swerved from the truth, and here's, here's what they've swerved from the truth on. He says they're saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, according to commentaries that I've read on this, He's not just saying that Jesus had, 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 had been resurrected because we already know that's true, right? So that's not swerving from the truth. So what, what are they preaching about the resurrection already happening? I think what they're preaching is that the resurrection of the saints had already happened. In some regard, they're saying, hey, you don't need to live this way anymore. Resurrection's already happened. It just seems like a really wild, whack heresy to me to be teaching that. It's almost like, hey, the, the end days are here. It's kind of that kind of teaching. Um, and, he, and he moves on. He says that they are upsetting the faith of some. This is really upsetting to the faith of many, right? At the end of the day, ungodly controversy is what they're creating. Ungodly controversy is never focused on the plain, straightforward truths of God's word. And, but if there's, if there's like something I'd love for everybody to hear me on for sure, it's, it's like this point. Because I think there's so much of this going around today. And not just in the world around us, but I think it's going on in the church all over the place. Because I think the church has gotten to a place in the world, maybe it's in America more than anything else, where there's a kind of a boredom with the plain teaching and preaching of God's word and the plain teaching and preaching of the gospel itself. And people are hungering and thirsting for things that feel new and shiny. And really all it is it's, it's, it's just teaching that's not focused on the plain, straightforward truths of God's Word. See, ungodly controversy is always focused on basically mixing little tidbits of truth, like cyanide, with a whole lot of falsehood. Sorry, little tidbits of truth with whole lots of falsehood, which is like cyanide, right? And I think what happens is in the midst of that, that those teachings become basically heretical poison. And the word heretical or heresy simply means the truth stretched beyond what it was intended to be. That's what heresy means. And it's often presented as some new teaching that you don't want to miss out on. Because if you miss out on this kind of teaching, that, that somehow like, you're not going to be as godly. The problem in Timothy's day, and still today, is that there are many within the church, the so-called church, many, who have swerved off the well-beaten pathways of gospel proclamation. The simple, pure, 
proclamation, the message of the cross, the message of the empty tomb, the promise of heaven. Why? Why would they swerve off of that and down into the ditches of heresy? I think it's because people's hearts often desire some kind of new teaching that is basically nothing more than ungodly controversy that that winds up spreading like rotten, stinking gangrene, right? And Paul says, beware of those people. Stay away from them or else they may upset your faith. So, person who has God's approval avoids ungodly controversy. Fourth thing I notice in the text is that a person who has God's approval trusts in God's sovereignty and runs from sin. Trusts in God's sovereignty and runs from sin. In the final verse, Apostle Paul says this. He says, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, an inscription, a mark, right? Like a tattoo, maybe. It's possible. God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. I love that. And, he says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So those final words, the Apostle Paul, verse 19, I think they're an encouragement to believers in that day and in this day. They're an encouragement to believers who have God's approval and are, are working not to argue about petty things, are doing that by rightly handling God's word and by avoiding ungodly controversy, right? So I think it's an encouragement to believers who are walking this pathway. But then at the same time, I think these final words are also an indictment or a warning against anyone who would continue to argue about stupid, petty little things, bring shame upon themselves as they engage in ungodly controversy, which does what? Spreads like this cancerous gangrene that they are infected with. So I think it's, it's an encouragement to believers, and it's a warning or an indictment for anyone who opposes God and His people. And the reason I say this is because of the context of that final verse. So everybody say this with me. Not say it with me. Say it after me. Context, context, context. Go. Okay, we're going to do it one more time, okay? I want to make sure you get it, okay? Context, context, context. The reason I say that is when you study the Bible, context, context, context is so important. You study a word. You study a verse, you study a chapter, you study the book, and then you study the rest of the entire book. That's context, okay? The, the illustration I often love to use, maybe you've heard it before, is if I write a letter to my wife, and I, and I write to her a number of different things in that letter, and you take um, one little sentence out of it, and you make it something that you think it is, but it has nothing to do with the context of the letter, what have you done? You've done me a disservice, you've done my wife a disservice, and you've now explained it in a way to other people that they might think of me and my wife in a way that is inappropriate and was not intended, right? That kind of teaching, most of us would call that proof text teaching, where you take one little verse and you make it mean something that it absolutely does not mean. I'm going to give you an illustration real fast. The shortest verse in the Bible is what? It's two words. Hey, you guys are good. Jesus wept. Can you imagine somebody taking those two words 
and then creating a sermon about how Jesus was a crybaby. Therefore, you and I need to be more emotional. And here's five points of how you can be more emotionally available for your wife and your kids and everybody else around you. Do you know that this happens all the time in church buildings all across America today? Happens all the time. You take that from that topic to health, wealth, prosperity, all sorts. I mean, I, the list just goes on and on and on. I say all that to say that this last verse, verse 19, has a context, context, context. That if you don't know the context, it may not feel as powerful. And it definitely is not as faithful. Who wants to know the context? Patrick wants to know the context. Okay. There's <laughs> a few of you. <laughs> So, this last verse, it's both an encouragement, brings us back to center, and a warning. You wouldn't initially catch it unless you knew the context, context, context. Okay, very good. The context of this passage is that it is taken directly from the words of Scripture in Numbers 16. Somebody say, what was happening in Numbers 16? I'm glad you asked, because I want to tell you. <laughs> Numbers 16. In number 16, there's a couple of well-known leaders in Israel who have gathered about 250 other leaders. And you want to know what they're doing? Say, what are they doing, Joe? What are you doing? <laughs> Let me tell you what they're doing. Okay, Those couple of leaders have gathered 250 other leaders, and they are getting ready to oppose Moses and Aaron's leadership. Isn't that crazy? Apostle Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recalls this memory from Israel's history, and in the context of Timothy's day where he's being opposed by false leaders, he puts these words, right? Immediately, Timothy would know by this inscription, the Lord knows whose are his. Let those who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Immediately, Timothy would go, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. All I got to do is trust God and run from sin. Right? These leaders with those 250 other leaders are gathering up to oppose Moses and Aaron's leadership in Israel's history. And in response to the opposition, what do you think Moses does? No, he does not call the mafia. Okay? No, he does not do that. No, he does not grab his AR and go to war. Although he did do some things similar to that in the history, if you want to read it. It's quite fascinating, in my opinion. Here's what Moses does. Moses actually sets up a meeting. He's like, all right, y'all, you want to oppose me? Fine. Let's meet up here tomorrow, let's say, hmm, 8.30 a.m. or so, grab some coffee, bring your favorite breakfast burrito, and let's see what God does. Well, I mean, that's my version, okay? It's just the way I... <laughs> feels a little bit like an episode of Peaky Blinders when I'm... <laughs> You're probably going to know. Don't watch Peaky Blinders. Okay. Back on track. He says, hey, let's meet up in the morning. Let's meet up in the morning. We're going to see. When we meet, I'm going to trust God, okay? We're going to see whom the Lord approves of and whom the Lord disapproves of. And here's what happens when they meet up in the next morning. In the midst of the conflict, Moses simply says, Hey, I know that God is sovereign. God knows who belongs to him. And God also knows that those who do belong to him are going to run from sin. And at the end of the story, that next morning, they're all standing out there and somebody, I'm sure, has got popcorn. Probably not. 
At the end of the story, all of Moses' opponents, they were swallowed up into the earth by an earthquake. And while they were getting swallowed by the earth, they were scorched by a flaming ball of fire from heaven. Now that ain't a heck of a morning in leadership. I don't know what is. That's fascinating. And the moral of the story is this. <laughs> With all that context, the person who has God's approval trusts that God is sovereign and runs from sin. That's the big idea of the end of the passage. In conclusion, I think the only question left for us to wrestle with is this. Am I, are you, someone who has God's approval? Am I, are you, someone who still opposes God and his people? It's, it's one side or the other, right? There's no gray space in between. You're on one side of that or you're on the other. And the reality is this. If you or I have not yet fully trusted in Christ, okay, if either of us has not yet bowed our knee in submission to Jesus, not only as our Savior for our get-out-of-hell-free card, but, but also bowed our knee to Jesus as our risen and returning King of kings and Lord of lords. If we're not there, then the reality is that you and I are in danger just like those rebellious leaders in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, and Moses' day. But, but if you and I have trusted in the work of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior, if you have, then you and I can rest assured that we have God's approval. As I said earlier, when you think about God's approval, it's not a blank check. Because the bank that the check was written on is fully funded by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, which means he owns all the livestock and he owns all the realty. All wealth belongs to our God, which means he and he alone gives us the approval that our hearts desire. See, our approval does not begin or really even end with our behavior. Our approval begins and ends with what Jesus alone accomplished at the cross and the empty tomb. When he hung on that cross, when they crushed that crown of thorns on his head, when they drove those nails through his hands and through his feet, when they beat him bloody within an inch of his life with that whip, when he carried that cross to the place where he would ultimately die, he did that for you and I. All of that. I love the image of knowing that when I read Romans 8, 1, and it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That that passage was written before the foundations of the earth. The truth of that was written in a book where your name and my name were placed in the Lamb's book of life. If you trusted in Him you haven't trusted in him and you're hearing this afresh and you're going, I need to trust in him, I'd almost bank on the fact that your name is in that book and I'm just waiting for you to surrender. 
And it's that message, that message that gives us approval. That's why I can humbly and confidently say that if you've trusted in Jesus, your approval comes from the floor, the throne room of heaven, where the King of kings and Lord of lords seated on his throne next to the Father God Almighty. And he will come from that place to judge the quick and the dead one day, right? And in that moment, he comes and grabs you and I by the hand and says, let's go. Welcome to eternity. I can't wait for that day. I don't know about you. I don't deserve it. Neither do you. But that's true approval. And as people who have God's approval, by faith, by grace, through faith, we place that, we get that in the finished work of Jesus at that cross. And in that, if you are someone who has God's approval, then you and I can both resist, simply resist, the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, resist arguing about petty things, spend our lives rightly handling God's word by avoiding ungodly controversy, and you do that as you trust in God's sovereignty and as we all run as fast as we can from any kind of sin that would seek to destroy us like gangrene. Amen? How would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that you be with us in these closing moments as we turn to the cross and remembering the work of your son Jesus at that cross. Help us to reflect on the current still presence of our own sin. Help us to also reflect, find joy and comfort in the power of the work of Jesus at that cross as his body was broken and as his blood was shed. Uh, Pray God that you help us to remember that with gratefulness, with joy. Give us assurance once again in the, uh, the work that you did on our behalf. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.